You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. My name's Nan Clark. I'm part of the pastoral care team here at Third. Uh, we're in a series, we're more than halfway through it, since it's well into August already. It's hard to believe the summer is going so fast. Uh, the series is called Taste and See, and that title comes from Psalm 34. Uh, David wrote this psalm after the Lord had delivered him in a, after, in a challenging situation, and he starts out by praising God for his deliverance, and he invites the community of faith to join in praising him. And then he pauses, and he challenges the people. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That image of tasting evokes the experience of a feast. And when we come to a feast, we breathe in the aromas of the Uh, food, and we savor the flavors and the textures of the different foods. And that food nourishes us and satisfies us. So in this series, what we've been doing is um, taking time to slow down and look for God's goodness, to taste and experience God's goodness in various ways. And today, we're going to taste God's goodness in the grace that he has given us in his son, Jesus. So let me pray, and then Lauren and Legrand will read our text for today. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning. We are grateful for your presence here with us, and we're thankful for your word. Lord, we know that you are a God who speaks and you speak to us through your living word. We pray that your spirit would minister life to us today through this word. We ask that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to understand, so that we might uh, go from this place different than when we came in. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, 
he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drank it new with you in my father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This, this is, is the, the word, word of the Lord. Lord. God. Have you ever thought about how many meals you've eaten over the course of your life? Well, I estimated that during our 52 years together, Boyd and I have eaten over 20,000 meals together. And that's actually only counting one a day. That's a lot of eating. What's surprising to me, though, is not how many meals we've eaten, but how few of them we remember. Most of them are pretty routine and pretty functional. But when one of those thousands of meals does stand out, um, it's usually because something exceptional, good or bad, has happened, or the food, it's been about the food, or the company, or the conversation. We still vividly recall a meal we had in the mid-70s when we were living in France. Some friends had invited us over for a meal, and it was unlike any other meal we'd ever had. It was a four-hour, multiple-course dinner with wonderful food and lots of great conversation, much of which we couldn't understand at that point. <laughs> but what impacted us the most was the way the family welcomed us into their midst, joyfully sharing their food with us and taking an interest in us. Well, I think uh, when we think about this meal and the disciples, Jesus and the disciples have had hundreds of meals together, but this is the only one that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's a Passover meal. And if you were here when Nathan Walton spoke a few weeks ago, you'll remember that Passover was the meal that God instructed the Israelites to eat on the night they were to flee out of Egypt and God would deliver them out of slavery. From that time on, God told them they were to remember that event and celebrate it with a seven-day festival and the festival began with the celebration of the Passover meal. Once all the preparations are in order, the whole family gathers from the youngest to the oldest, and they participate in retelling the Exodus story. They follow a liturgy that centers on special food and wine. As they sing and pray and recite scripture, they remember the past, but they also look to the future. The meal ends with prayers for God to return and complete Israel's deliverance that started so long ago. There is a deep longing for God to fill his, fulfill his promise for restoration and renewal. So this is what the disciples are expecting as they get everything ready for this Passover meal with Jesus but it doesn't go quite the way they expect. 
And I'd like to just take a few minutes to look at two things, two moments in that meal that make it unforgettable for the disciples. The first is the shattering realization that one of these disciples will commit the ultimate act of treachery. And the second is the way the Passover, or, or sorry, the way Jesus takes the Passover narrative in a, in a different direction than they're expecting. So let's look first at the uh, way betrayal plays center stage in their conversation. In the middle of a celebratory, joyful meal, Jesus delivers a conversation stopper. Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The entire tone of the meal changes. The disciples are understandably upset. They are his most trusted friends, his family. They're breaking bread together And in that culture, to betray someone you eat bread with is unimaginable. How could one of them betray the man they believe is Jesus, is God's Messiah? So they begin to experience self-doubt, and each one hesitantly asks Jesus, Is it me, Lord? Surely you don't mean me. Notice that the disciples don't point the finger at Judas. They are oblivious to the fact that he's actually already conspired with the chief priests, and they've paid him to hand Jesus over to them. The disciples accept Judas as one of their brothers, one of Jesus' closest friends. Jesus doesn't reveal this betrayal to shame or condemn, but to indicate what is about to happen to him. Judas will play a role in that, but he isn't the only actor on the stage of this drama. I hope you heard a couple of little hints in there that lead us in a bit of a different direction. We heard Jesus say in verse 18 that his appointed time is near. And then again in verse 24, he says that the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Ultimately, Jesus knows that his life and death are not in Judas's hands, that even in this act of betrayal, God is working out a much greater purpose. Jesus demonstrates a quiet and steady confidence in God's faithfulness to his word. I think Matthew wants us to see this tension here between God's purposes and human actions. And I think it's a tension we all wrestle with. I know I do. We see here that God does hold us responsible for our actions, as he does Judas. And yet, at the same time, those same actions cannot and will not thwart the purposes of God. I hear the echo of Joseph in this story. You may remember the story way back in the book of Genesis. Joseph's brothers betray him. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph suffers for well over 20 years, 
And eventually, he becomes the most powerful man, or second most powerful man in Egypt. When he confronts his brothers, finally, they're, they're afraid of him. Of course, they think he's going to have them put to death. Listen to what Joseph says to them. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people will be alive as they are today. I find those words so comforting to know that ultimately my life, your life, our lives are not in human hands, they're in God's hands. So let's turn now from the drama of betrayal and look at how Jesus redirects the Passover narrative as they eat together. Typically what would happen at a Passover feast is the host would break the bread and serve uh, the folks gathered around the table. And as he did, he would recite these words. This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Thus the Almighty did for me when I came out of Egypt. But Jesus doesn't follow the script. Instead, he breaks the bread and he says, take and eat. This is my body. He does the same with the cup. There were four cups of wine at the Passover dinner. This would be the third cup, the cup of blessing after the meal. It was also called the cup of redemption because it signified the blood of the lamb that the Israelites sprinkled on the doorposts there last night in Egypt. So after Jesus gives thanks, he gives them the cup. And he says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is reinterpreting the bread and wine in terms of his own death, symbolized in his broken body and his shed blood. He's not writing a new story. He's taking the much-loved, familiar Passover story where God always meant for it to go. Only in retrospect will the disciples understand that the betrayal and death of the Messiah are actually the fulfillment of the hope embedded in the Passover story. Jesus' broken body and shed blood are the means of the long-anticipated deliverance of God's people. But this deliverance that Jesus is talking about is not from slavery to foreign enemies. It's from slavery to the power of sin and death. It's not deliverance to another land. It's deliverance into the kingdom of God. And it's not deliverance just for the Jewish people. It's deliverance, salvation, redemption, all these wonderful words that we use for all people, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Again, looking back at Nathan's sermon, I was struck when he said that Passover is a reminder that God shows up. 
And when God shows up, everything changes. In Jesus, God has shown up. He's shown up at this Passover meal, and everything has changed. So here we are today, more than 2,000 years later, and we look back on this dramatic and pivotal Last Supper, and we see it as the foundation for the Lord's Supper, the meal we share together on a regular basis as God's people. I think it's easy for anything we do regularly to become routine. Sometimes it feels like we just, oops, second, first Sunday of the month, we tack it on to the end of the service. We don't give it a whole lot of thought. And so what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is I purposely kept the sermon short so we have time to really think about what this meal means and then to partake together. There's lots of reasons we're here today to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but I'd like to just talk about three of them, three things that, that, we're fo- that we can focus on as we partake together. The first is that this is the place where, as a community, we are calling to mind the story that shapes us as God's people. The broken bread, the poured out wine, These are powerful, visible symbols that remind us that Jesus gave himself freely for the sake of others. So we come in humility, grateful for the gift of forgiveness. We remember that God's purposes are so good and so great that even betrayal can unleash grace and we taste God's goodness. Second, we remind one another that Jesus' death was not the end of the story. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he has given us the spirit who indwells us. We eat the bread, we drink the cup, and we believe that in some mysterious way, Jesus is present to us through his spirit. This is the Lord's table. Jesus is the host, and he always shows up. In the same way that food nourishes and energizes our physical body, so Jesus in this bread and cup nourishes and energizes the new creation life that he has birthed in us through faith. We experience anew Jesus' transforming grace, and we taste God's goodness. Finally, God renews our hope at this table. We live in the already not yet. The messiness and brokenness of this world infects all of us. We long for Jesus to return and make all things new. As we wait, we can be confident that just as God fulfilled his promise in sending Jesus the first time, he will send him back and establish his kingdom on earth, even as it is in heaven. We trust in a sure and certain hope, and we taste 
God's goodness. Jesus invites us today to come to the table. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. We thank you, Jesus, that in this meal, past, present, and future all converge. We thank you for the gift of your life. You have brought us out of darkness into light. We thank you for the gift of your presence. You are a very present help in trouble. And we thank you for the gift of hope that you will return and make all things new. May we taste your goodness as we share together in this meal. Amen.